You're listening to the Geekdom Fireside Chat Series, recorded live in downtown San Antonio, Texas. Let's join our host for this month's Fireside Chat. So my name is David Jones. I'm an attorney. My office is right over there. It's the one with all the bright colored post-its on the wall instead of wall art, because I've been told it needs to have some kind of wall art. And we have post-its now. And I work primarily with startups and technology companies. Um, Josh is somebody that I've known since before the startup weekend that was the kickoff of this whole saga. Um, and I think what I'll, so I'll pass the microphone to Josh, let him introduce himself and, and sort of in keeping with the theme that these are these chats are about getting to know people and know their stories and sort of how they got to where they are. Um, in a way that doesn't read like a resume or, or a LinkedIn bio. Um, maybe, Josh, the first question is, why well, don't you tell us a little bit about you know, your background, where you grew up, education, those sorts of things. My name is Josh Sanchez, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of FloatMe. A bit about myself, so I'm originally from the Valley, so McCown, Texas, actually, about four hours south of here. I came to San Antonio in 2013 to start school here at University of the Incarnate Word, where I received a degree in business management. Growing up, I always had a fascination for for Legos and building things. Um, I think that's what led to a bit of creativity. Um, My dad called me the destroyer growing up because I used to have a fixation with, uh, you know, getting computers and breaking them apart just to see what was inside. Um, But eventually that led to my first business, which was um, actually repairing iPhones. Um, I had a big problem where I'd always break a phone and, you know, it's expensive to repair your phone going through the Apple store, going through your phone carrier. So then I figured out why not order the part online and do it yourself. So, um, I, funny enough, I used to be called the iPhone doctor, um, in, in high school, uh, I would repair people's phones for much cheaper than what you would pay at Best Buy, Apple store, et cetera. Following that, um, I started a online apparel company for which I learned a lot from as well. And then in college, after graduation, I got a, a job at ADP. So they're the, one of the nation's uh, largest payroll providers, a Fortune 500 company. I lasted there for about a month. I hated it. I quit my job. I was you know, stuck in a cubicle the whole day. Um, I was told that this was the way to do things. And uh, frankly, I felt that there was a you know, different approach to in sales, I could get, you know, much better leads, et cetera. So I quit that. And I quit that because I wanted to work for a startup um, called Digital Creative Institute here uh, in San Antonio. And I quit because I, the CEO of the company, he had, you know, formally sold another company. And uh, to me, that was really awesome, um, knowing that I, regardless if I'd take a pay cut, I'd have the opportunity to learn a lot from him. Um, I guess that's probably a, a good interlude sure. into... Well, and so, you know, as you might as you might expect, Josh and I sort of traded some messages and we talked a little bit on the phone about what kinds of things we would cover and the, the topics that we would cover and the order in which we'd cover them. Um, one thing I didn't tell Josh well, in that process was that I reached out to several of the people that worked with him at DCI and several people who work with him now at FloatMe to see if they had any particular stories about Josh that they wanted to share with me. I don't know whether this is because people, um, you know, see Josh as the rising star that he is and they want to stay in his good graces, or because their stock in FloatMe hasn't fully vested yet. I did come up with a couple of things. Um, the first one here, you're, gonna, you're not going to believe this one. So this is a give me a quote about Josh. And the quote is, when Josh started working here, he said, 
I love working with startups. I want to learn how to launch and grow one. And that was all he said. And I thought, okay, well, that's not too good. Um, another one sent me a message saying, Josh spent a year making his own standing desk in order to save a few hundred dollars at one point when FloatMe was just getting started. A solid year, an unknown, unknown skill, woodworking, right? But the one that I kind of enjoyed the most was a story that when, uh, when FloatMe had reached a point where it had outgrown the geekdom space and had had investment and was gonna move into the offices of Active Capital, you know, some of the people on the team didn't know the building very well. And so the building that Active Capital works in is a few blocks up the street on Soledad. And it's famous for having like the worst parking of any business ever in, in the downtown area. But Josh, um, persuasive person that he is, persuaded at least one person on the FloatMe team that one of the benefits of moving into the Active Capital space was that when they got a company boat, there was enough parking that they could they could park it in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, if if you know that spot, I'll tell you one story. Josh will remember this. The last time I went up to that building, I mean, they literally have like ten parking spaces for a four-story building. So I went up there just to visit with Josh and his team one day, and I was looking for parking, looking for parking, and there was one spot that wasn't marked as somebody's designated parking spot. Apparently, it was somebody's designated parking spot. And so while I was in with Josh and, and the team, whoever space it is decided they were just going to park right behind me, like two inches behind my car so that I couldn't get out. And I had to go through the entire building to try to find whose car it was and, you know, really got some serious stink eye all the way down the stairs before this guy would finally agree to move his car and, like, wouldn't understand what I'm like. I didn't see it was a space, but, yeah, I know, right? Well, so, Josh, one of the things, you mentioned Startup Weekend. Matt mentioned Startup Weekend. That was really kind of the, the catalytic force that led to uh, the beginnings of FloatMe. Uh, why don't you tell us what led you to, what, what inspired you to come up with the idea for FloatMe? And, uh, and what led you to decide you wanted to do a startup weekend? Before having done that startup weekend, I, I had done actually two startup weekends in the past. And really, that's what uh, propelled my fascination for startups, just because you get to do multiple things. You're wearing multiple hats. Being a part of that startup weekend wasn't new to me. I think what was new to me was in the other startup weekends, I was always a team member. I, you know, I'd pitched ideas and I, I mean, they didn't go through or et cetera. Um, but, you know, this one was a bit different because I, I had a personal self-experience where, um, funny enough, I was actually hit by a via bus downtown here in San Antonio on my way to work. And via self-insured, they'll take forever to pay out claims. Geico wasn't, my car insurance company wasn't going to pay out yet because they wanted via to, to settle it. So I, you know, was basically with a damaged car and I dished out the cash, my savings to repair my vehicle until Geico would pay out a claim or via that. I think they just paid out a small claim two, three months ago in December. And that's like two and a half years later. Um, so I would have waited for, for a while. And so I, I dished out the cash, my savings to basically repair my car. And, you know, I was left with a situation where I was like, you know, how am I going to do it to, to get to next week? And if I only have like 10 bucks in my account. Um, I have these expenses that are coming up. What am I going to do? 
And I've always been prideful. Like I, I could have asked my, my parents for money or something, but I made the mistake of taking out a loan and I didn't, I didn't know what kind of loan I was taking out at the time. So I took out a payday loan. I, you know, did not know the predatory interest rates. I just saw a loan and I saw the word payday and I was like, oh, okay, well, it's just a you know loan on your payday. It was at then at that moment where I discovered, okay, like this does not make sense. You know, there's got to be a better solution or alternative to what exists out there today. And, you know, with that, I also started learning about overdraft fees um, and really how big they are. If you translate, you know, the $34, $35 average overdraft fee into APR. And, you know, going to Startup Weekend, I was like, you know, I, I, I have to think about a better way to to you know, get cash when, when I need it, just in case if there's a cash shortfall and emergency happens. I mean, it happens to everybody. 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck every year. I just went into that startup weekend and, you know, I just was like, if you've already worked and earned hours, you know, at your, your workplace, why not have access to that cash sooner when you need it? And I think that's really what propelled the idea. As I remember, five or six people on your team during Startup Weekend. I should say, by the way, I was one of the judges that weekend. Did you know any of those people before the weekend, or did that team just kind of casually come together on the Friday evening? I knew zero of them. I, I, I'd seen one person, Ryan, which is actually our, our, our uh, chief operating officer today, um, but that's about it. As, as a matter of fact, I Ryan was the only person I'd seen around through Geekdom because he was actually at another startup here. Um, and that was the first time I said hi to him. Um, but that was pretty much it. I did not know, you know anybody else. Well, now, just for anybody here who doesn't know how a startup weekend works, people who sign up come in and do a one-minute pitch on Friday night. Everybody in the audience gets three votes, and you get to vote for the companies that you think are the most promising, and that you move forward and form a team. And so Josh's idea for Float Me uh, was one of the audience choices that Friday evening, and then five or six other people joined the team. They worked on the idea all weekend. They came back and pitched on Sunday night, and they were the first place winner. What was it about that particular startup weekend that made you want to sign up and say, this is the time I'm going to really go out and pitch my idea? In a startup, what really matters, I think, initially and early on is a team. Um, you, you can't do things by yourself. You know, you need to have others around you to support you or do things that are complacent to your skill sets that you might not have. Um, so I knew that I had to go to something and that I've already had you know exposure to. And through that, I knew I was going to be able to at least get one developer on board to uh, be crazy enough about the idea. And uh, I think that was just my, my mindset going in. When I did pitch that idea that night, I was kind of hoping that there was less people that would be on my team because then I was like, oh, crap, like I have to tell some people that they can't be a part of it moving forward. And and that was actually a big learning you know, point in, in just starting Float Me and, and, and scaling it. So how did the idea for Float Me evolve over that weekend? Originally, we were a lender by the people for the people. So what that means is that um, anyone could sign up onto our platform and lend out their cash, you know, to others in case they, they needed it. That was just a bold, audacious idea. And little did we know the, the regulations and laws that exist today for that type of business model. Um, on top of that, you know, the restriction was having to be regulated and licensed in every state just to operate. So that's originally what we started as. Um, but it's since transitioned a lot. Yeah. 
we'll get to exactly where you are and where you're going in a little in a little bit. But one of the things I often get asked as a lawyer um, that I see as a as a very common mistake that people make when they're first starting a business is that the person who has the idea for the business gives up ownership to other people too quickly. Now that was not one of the things that you did, and um, you know I've actually sent people who are starting new businesses and have a team to go talk to Josh about the way that he finished the weekend and approached the idea of figuring out who is going to be on the team going forward and what you asked them to do. Yeah, so the the big thing for me was um, who wants to work on this and who doesn't. And if you want to work on this, then can you commit to you know getting together every weekend just to map out what each of our skill sets are, you know what we're missing, um, figure out who our exact customer is, who's going to do the customer validation, who's going to go out and you know talk to these customers and see if this is even a product that's worthwhile pursuing, um, who's going to you know look at the the financials, um, dive into the the business model, how unit economics are going to work, all those things, and I think what really helped us was the commitment factor. So, you know, I think anyone can have an idea. Um, it really, really, really comes down to the execution. Um, execution is everything. And, and, you know, by setting the stage for, you know, having to meet every weekend to, to map out what everyone's going to do and, and just show the, the accountability w- within each other, I think that really helped me first to understand who can I really, you know, count on um, and, and in addition to that, you know, it also helped avoid the mistake of giving up too much equity early on. So I think that that was really helpful. So tell us the things that you did to, because I, I can remember that um, in this conference room right over here, um, the team was here one, one night during the week, for Thursdays, I think, if I remember correctly, and they were here every Sunday um, for several hours, um, you know, with a group of people that all had other jobs or other things going on. Um, you know, all of them having had it made clear to them, they were not entitled to anything. This was Josh's idea. And just because you were on my team on Startup Weekend doesn't mean you own anything. doesn't mean you're entitled to be part of this team. So tell me what kinds of things you did to determine who really was committed. Obviously, the showing up is a huge part of that, but but there was more to, more to it than that. So the first thing was actually the hardest, and that was just figuring out who wasn't going to be worthwhile or, you know, be worthwhile to be included early on. And that was just telling people like I, in a nice way, I, I don't think that this is the right opportunity for you. Um, so that was the first thing. Um, second, I would say was laying out that path that shows, you know, here's how you're going to be accountable. In addition to that, it was laying out my own path, showing how I was going to be accountable to others. Um, I think that's super important. In addition to that, I would say it was, um, measuring what someone's passion was um, and how that passion correlated to what the vision of the company would eventually be. And if I saw that, you know, someone wasn't aligned with what we were doing or there was at at a certain point of a company, you have to get out of this whole idea phase because if you keep spinning up ideas then you're never going to get anywhere. So we had to be fixated on solving one thing and one problem. And that's how all great companies start. Um, And I think that's what also helped us, you know, omit team members that shouldn't be on board. And then 
I think in addition to that, I mean, you did provide some helpful resources to, to look into as far as, you know, who's going to be doing the fundraising, who's going to quit their job first. Um, that's a huge thing. I, I don't know. I think it was a combination of, of multiple. Well, no, I recall that apart from just the requirement to show up and be, be an active participant in the Thursday night and Sunday meetings, there were homework assignments, essentially. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about those, because I think that's it's pretty unusual, and it's one of the things that you know I really respect about the way that Josh, you know, approached um, forming his team and building his company. Um, so to give an easy example, it was a, like the the market validation thing. Um, how can you go out and talk to a hundred people and see on your on your own and and come back next week and say, here's you know the the results of the people that would be interested. Here's the you know demographics of the the people you spoke with. Here's uh, you know what they had in their savings, and most people you know weren't comfortable sharing a lot of those things. So you're getting a lot of no's at the same time. But that was one example. It's just like, you know, go out and talk to people, see if this is something they're interested to, and then come back. Let's report on it and and then, you know, use that data to uh, help influence the, the next challenge. Um, but I'd say that's like one of the easy homework assignments that was. Now, how long was it between Startup Weekend and the time period when you decided, okay, this person, this person, this person, I'm willing to start talking with them or, you know, sign paperwork that grants them an equity ownership in the company? Uh, Startup Weekend was October 2017. We didn't legally form till March of 2018. I don't think any equity docs were signed till mid-2018, mid so the summer of 2018, so what, nine months? Um, yeah, nine months to sign who gets a percentage of what. Um, that was quite some time. And during that nine-month time period, um, you were continuing to work at Digital Creative Institute, right? Um, so what was it that got you to the point where you felt like, okay, I can give up the, you know, the steadiness of having a paycheck and working on this um, on the side and really make the leap to be all in on on float me. Um, I would attribute that, attribute all of that to the person I used to work for, which was Brad Voller of, of Digital Creative Institute. You know, I had been in a sales role. I had saved up all my commission checks. Um, I remember, so it wasn't Brad that told me this, but I remember, I can't remember the name of the person, but if if you're going to quit your job, you should work you know twice as hard in your current job to basically, you know, either fund the little bit of runway or the runway that you're going to need to, to be able to quit your job. Um, so that was, that was one thing, but the other was actually Brad telling me like, and we were at in a discussion about my, my next pay raise. And he was like, you know, you can either stay here or you can quit your job. And, you know, I think you're going to need to quit your job. And it was just a candid conversation. And it was him sharing that from, from experience. And, you know, eventually we we were just had a genuine conversation and laid out here's when it makes sense for for me to quit my job i will you know help transition over everything i've been working on all the partnerships i've established all the relationships i already have existing with companies in san antonio and austin um we we laid out a transition plan and it worked very smoothly um, but you know, internally I had, did have to make sure that I had enough runway to sustain myself, uh, when I was going to quit my job. So it, it was, it, it worked out well. Um, but it was, it was one of the scariest things I've ever, I've ever done. Had you raised any money by the time you quit? No, no, no. You know, I mentioned and Matt mentioned, and you've mentioned digital creative Institute, um, which I know 
was an important influencer for you in, in your career development. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what DCI is and, and what your experience was there? Digital Creative offers the nation's first registered digital marketing apprenticeship program. Essentially, it's a 12-month apprenticeship where you can learn all things digital marketing that's taught by practitioners of the craft. So you're talking about, you know, the VP of marketing for Rackspace, for Indeed out in Austin, people that do this day in, day out. And through that, you know, I I learned a little bit about what digital marketing is and, and how that exists. I think what really helped out with uh, DCI was the people that were involved. So, for example, Aurora Geis, she's an executive coach. Um, She was someone that uh, our apprentices would go to to, you know, have transparent conversations about what's going on in their life, what's going on about their personal career development. And I was I had the I was fortunate enough to, to leverage her and, you know, share what I was going through and what I was thinking about doing. I'd say, you know. It was a it was an awesome experience, and I think they're doing something truly transformational, which is that you know you don't have to to go to college essentially to to get into a digital marketing role. And in addition to that, what they were doing for employers was that they were trying to tell them that they can hire a junior talent as opposed to paying you know much more for a senior you know digital marketer. And so it was it was a unique opportunity, but I think. What also helped me too was just the relationships that were built um, in a sales role. So I was able to facilitate partnerships with partner companies um, that would actually sponsor the apprentices in, in the program. And you know the people I connected with were were also super helpful. I got to learn about um, you know an investor in Austin that eventually invested in us. I, I think it was really the the network um, that that's what helped out as well. Well, by the way, I'll tell you, so when, when I first became a member here at Geekdom, one of the people who uh, worked here, because the, the DCI crew hangs out typically on the eighth floor, and one of the people who was working at the company then was a guy named Victor Vo, who now runs DCI in Austin. And um, so one of the people I reached out to earlier today was Victor. Victor was famous for his puns. He could come up with puns like silly rhyming stories for everything. And so when he, he, when he responds, because I know he's going to, I'm going to have to share that with you, but he didn't respond in time for this, this talk tonight. Let's talk a little bit about what's happened in the growth of Float Me since you left DCI. And so at that point, um, so this was summer of 18, right? So it's about you know, a little less than two years ago. So how many people were on the team then and how many people are on the team now? So when when I quit my job to go full time for Float Me, um, there was still I think uh, four or five people on, on board. Um, I myself was obviously the the only full time member. Um, I think we had also got Chris, who's our, our chief technology officer. Chris uh, came on around that same time in the summer of twenty eighteen. And we're still trying to figure out things. We had let go of actually two more members. So we were down to three. Following that, I think uh, what you had asked was, you know, what went after I went full time. We would partner with employers to try to offer the uh, early access to their wages in turn for employers. Um, you know, reduce the cost of turnover, correct, like like wellness benefits to employers. I leveraged all the relationships I had built with DCI. So I kind of had a, a lead list to, to reach out to. And we learned a lot through that. Um, when that was going on as well, we started realizing that, oh, crap, like we're building 
a much better consumer product because at the time we're getting a lot of um, attention from just you know the, the general uh, user that was out on the app store. And that kind of really got us thinking like, we should probably build a product that's better suited for the consumer. It might be that, you know, we don't have to have all these integrations with employers. So then in January of 2019, that's when we made the the full transition over to a B2C company. So a business to consumer company in that time frame, you know, our existing product was, it wasn't the best thing in the world, but what mattered most was that it was functional. So we were able to test out a lot of things, uh, get user feedback, when we started, we we're offering advances of up to $200. Um, what we learned from that was that, you know, a, a lot of America has a, a big problem with overborrowing. Um, so that basically led us to reduce the wage advance amount to $50, which today continues to be sufficient and has um, helped us, you know, create our niche. In addition to that, you know, we had to basically redesign the entire product to be better suited for the the end consumer. And then I joined or was a part of the Geekdom Pre-Accelerator program, which was super instrumental to our growth. Um, what that really helped us with was uh, a challenge that I had personally, which was being able to tell a story that, you know, resonated with investors. Um, investors hear different things than what I'm sharing with you now. So they're going to hear things such as, you know, how fast is this company growing? Um, you have to know who your exact customer is. You have to know your, your, your unit economics, you know, what it costs you to, to acquire a customer, the expense to bring on somebody. And then in uh, summer, the summer following that program, that's when we um, had uh, raised some capital to, to get us off the floor and we had uh, launched a uh, you know rough idea of the product and um, had started to get some some more recognition and uh, started learning more about our customer and um, since we've been uh, continuing to grow so um, to date we've raised about half a million dollars um, we've been growing users and revenue for, uh, double uh, we've been doubling our, our users and revenue for the past four months so we've we've been uh, growing pretty fast and our big challenge now is um, in March actually so I'm excited to announce that we're we're opening up the gates and, and going live so um, that's both scary and exciting but we're we're, we're, we're thrilled you know just to, to be available to everybody. Well, let's back up a little bit to when you first um, first put an app out into the App Store and you came to realize that the people who were really responding to the idea of Floping were consumers and not businesses. How did you figure out that it was consumers who were responding and what marketing or, or communications did you do to figure out what they liked, what they didn't like? Obviously, you can look at what the analytics say, but what, what customer discovery did you do with customers to find out what features they wanted, what features they didn't. So what helped us um, following following the startup weekend was actually just doing the, the, the customer analysis. So that was just seeing where customers live. And what I mean by where they live was, you know, where are they spending their time on the internet? Um, what websites are they visiting? Um, what kind of products are they seeking? Um, where are they spending their time? How much of their time are they spending? And that really helped us to optimize for keywords on both the, the Google Play for Android and the Apple App Store for, for iOS. So in turn, that basically helped us to, to rank for things that people were already looking for. Um, so that's what really helped us out in you know, growing our, our, our customer base. So now you, you said that um, the first uh, infusion of, of fundraising cash 
was during the summer of 2019. Describe the process that went from you thinking, I'd love to get some investors, to actually having people sign pieces of paper. Getting told no a hundred times. That's part of the process. You know, you, you, you're going to get shut down so many times. And it's, I think the one thing that's helped me keep moving forward is uh, passion. The thing that's super important was, you know, there had to be a full-time employee in the, in the company. And that was um, myself. Uh, the other thing was not going to fund something that was just an idea. Um, the investors that we had spoken to just, you know, invested on that, on that sole data point and that was just that we we had people that were interested in the product it was just a matter of you know making some some fine tunes to the product and and deploying and and proving out that customers were were going to be on board so uh tell us a little bit about um what you've observed are the different skills that are required to be a marketer to consumers and a marketer of your company to investors the big difference is is money. Um, you want to have a customer uh, make a transaction, and a transaction cannot. It doesn't have to mean money. I'm sorry. So it could be just a a like or a activity on your your platform. I think in addition to that, it was just proving that there was interest for the product. So we conducted a lot of surveys that indicated you know someone was interested in this side of the product. I would say that was pretty much it. The other side of the story is, of course, getting told no so many times. So you, all it takes is, is one yes. Um, you're going to have to ask numerous times to, to try to get someone to write you a check. But when you're trying to get a check, you have to have a specific reason for it. Um, and that's how fundraising works. You're always thinking backwards. So with us now raising for, for our seed round, I'm already thinking about what I needed to I, where I need to be in that seed round to raise our, our series A. So you have to think backwards and, you know, when fundraising, you have to have a milestone, whether that's, you know, I want to build this side of the product, uh, this milestone entails being able to hire, you know, five more salespeople to, you know, expand our, our operations and get to get us to this monthly revenue or, and for us, the, the milestone was essentially, you know, opening up the, or actually getting all the, the waitlist people onboarded. Um, so I think that's what helped us is just, you know, having a milestone. So I'm curious if you can share with us some of the pieces of advice you've gotten that have been the best advice that you'd like to share with the audience. And then we'll come to either the worst advice or the advice that you are the most happy you ignored. So the best and worst advice, I'm not going to say who shared this, but I remember getting told, um, you know, you're not a good founder. Um, I remember getting told that. And to me, that was the best advice I actually got because, you know, someone can take it with, with heart and just be like, you know what, I pro I'm probably not. But for, for me, that was a mindset of being relentless and um, tr trying to prove that I, that I was. I think that was a, the best and worst advice I got. I'd say the other advice I got was probably around etiquette. So what works with investing is, you know, being, well, you want to be very proper, right? Um, but because you're, you're having conversations with people that have done this day in, day out. Um, and what I've learned too about the investing world is that it's a small world. Like everyone that's in the investing community knows each other. So you never want to lie about anything because that can come back and bite you. How about a piece of advice that somebody gave you that you didn't follow and you're really glad you didn't? 
you're you're gonna have a lot of mentors that tell you this is the way to do something. This is the way to. There's gonna be a multifaceted um, approach to how you can do X, Y, Z, or whatever. Uh, what was helpful for helpful for me was taking everything with a grain of salt. Um, you know, not thinking that okay, this is this person is probably white, right? So um, I'd say so. Jag Bath, um, he's the CEO of Favor actually, uh, which was acquired by HEB. Um, he had shared that you know you sh- you should take everything with a grain of salt. Like no one's ever going to have the right answer. You just have to know internally what you think is right. Is there money, the investor money that you've turned down and you're really happy that you turned it down for one reason or another? Early on at, at our stage, we're kind of like, well, money is money. Like we need to, to, to get money to sustain the business. And being that we're kind of a lender, um, we needed a lending facility to essentially, you know, be able to lend out that money and generate revenue from that money. Early on, one big learning thing was that the first check you're ever going to get is going to be the it's, it's the most expensive check, you know, because when you think about valuation, you know, fundraising goes in a series of stages. Each time you fundraise, you're giving up a percentage. If you look at your cap table, traditionally, the first check is always the, the biggest check. And what I mean by biggest check is it's the, the biggest chunk of the company that you're going to give up. I think now at the stage that we're at. So early on, it was a lot of you know, outreach myself, like reaching out to investors and just sharing that we're what we were working on. And the narrative has changed a little bit. You know, we're, we're starting to get some more inbound. So I'll have someone that reaches out and shares, you know, here's uh, what we do. Here's how we can support your company. Um, let's, you know, move forward. And there was a one firm that we move, we moved to stage of due diligence. Um, and it didn't make sense because I had n- never fundraised, or I I did not know of anybody that had fundraised from them before. They were fairly new, so that's kind of one of the the things that you have to be careful about. Is when you do have conversations with investors or you know investment firms, you want to see what other companies they've invested in, and if you can reach out to the the founders of the companies that they've invested in, because they'll tell you what it's like to work with one of, with with those investors. Early on, like we we didn't have any bad money. Like we haven't had to turn down anything. One of the um, things I'd be curious uh, for you to, to tell us a bit about is, you know, when people think about fundraising from venture capital companies, they typically think about the dollars. What are some of the other things that you have gotten from the people and the companies that have invested in you that you think make their money extra valuable to the growth of your company? So it, it, it's the people at the firm. So, um, you know, these are kind of people that you're going to marry. Uh, they're going to be with you through the the longevity of the company. Um, they're going to be someone that you want to be candid with and just be transparent and share, here's here's what's going on or wrong with the company. Um, you, you never want to, you know, lie about any of those things. It's, it's super important to highlight, while you can highlight all the good and everyone sees the good, you know, no one's ever going to really understand the bad. When you're bringing on investment, you want to know the person that's coming on board too, um, because that's someone that you can reach out to for anything. And um, funny enough, I was sharing with with Chris, uh, one of our uh, investors out of Cleveland. You know, I, I get emails from him like at three, four in the morning. I'm just like, how is this guy up? I think he's like sixty, um, and it it confuses me like how they can be up so early, and it, it kind of motivates me to want to be up early, but. Um, I'd say it's, it's the people that you're getting on cause they're, 
they're going to be your, your cheerleaders essentially, you know, they're going to talk the the same, same way you talk about your company. I, I mean, I, I, I think it's the, the only thing I should, I could share about that. Yeah. Well, and I know for some of the people, some of the people and companies that have invested you, part of what they've offer, also offered you is access to their networks and connections that, that, that you may have been able to make on your own, but they can make them almost instantly for you. And, and they do it with credibility in front of it. Um, so let's take a minute and talk about kind of where you are and where you're going. Now, you mentioned a little bit ago that um, you're weeks away from a public launch, and I recall seeing uh, something in the press recently that you have a waiting list of 70,000 people. Um, so first of all, congratulations on all that. Um, and then let's talk about sort of where's, where, where do you envision float me being, you know, six months from now and a few months from now. And, and what are the things that you think are the most critical factors to achieving the goals that you have? Um, I guess to first off with the the launch. So we've been in a public beta for about six months now. We've done that to learn more about our customers, uh, figure out, you know, how the the product is able to resonate with them, what kinks are are off. In that process too, we've learned to not spend a lot of dev time, so like fixing an issue for one person when that dev time could be used for you know feature improvements or, or, or things like that. So. It was a. It's been a learning experience, so um, we're excited to share that. You know, we're we're uh, being open to the gates in, in March. So what that means is that you won't have to have an access code to basically use the application. Um, and I'd say six months from now, uh, where we want to be is really expanding upon the saving side of our products. So uh, one thing that we haven't released yet is uh, what's called Float Me Stash which is essentially a for the benefit of account designed to help people build or automatically build savings. So what that is, is us being able to understand, you know, how, how much is appropriate for you to save on a, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, uh, what seems adequate without, you know, overdrafting your account, very much similar to like acorns or, or digit that exists today, being able to round up your spare change. Um, but you know, from that, what we want to be able to do, so we, when I think about our customer, we know what their pain points are, and today that's you know the overdraft fees. That's why we're we're we've bit we've had a high you know conversion and organic growth of, with that. Um, we know what they want, and that's the the saving side. So being able to to build savings, and then the the other thing I would say is that we also know what's impossible for them, and that's you know being able to attain a credit card or rebuild their credit. So. With that in mind, you know, moving towards the vision, it's really about being able to to offer our our customers an entrance and the pathway to to beginner credit products. Um, there's a big gap for that. You know, as a matter of fact, 63% of millennials don't have a credit card. Um, that's the majority of our customer base today. Um, so it's it's being able to create a a um, pathway for the end consumer in a staged basis. And um, what we did. At the end of last year, was actually facilitated a banking partnership with NBKC out in Kansas City to, to basically offer savings accounts to our users. And what we want to do is be able to customize some of those savings goals as well. Um, but in terms of a few years from now, I think what I see is uh, being able to, to build additional products that help our customers not only become more successful, but also makes it harder for them to want to quit. Yeah, because it seems like the savings aspect of it is 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 intended to create stickier or longer lasting relationships than just, I have a flat tire, I need a hundred bucks to fix it and I'll pay you back on payday. 
So we're getting sort of towards the end of the time because I know I need to leave some some time in here for audience Q&A. So I wonder, Josh, if you have any last uh, sort of lessons or thoughts to share with the group while we've been chatting for the last 45 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, I'd say, like, I think going back to the whole ideas thing, you know, anyone can come up with an idea. That's the easy part. I mean, what does it cost? Like two, three hundred bucks to set up an LLC or maybe a thousand to set up a C Corp. Um, so anyone can do that. I think really you, you have to figure out what you're passionate about first, because passion is what's going to carry you through the, the hard days. Um, there's so many days where I was, you know, laying in my bed, looking at the ceiling, thinking, what the hell did I do? Like, why did I quit my job? Um, you know, why am I working on this? Um, you know, there's, there's so many rough days that you have. Um, but what carried me was the passion, you know, and that was our, our passion and, and what's our mission today. And that's helping people make better financial decisions. Um, so I would say if you're pursuing something, you have to be passionate about it. If not, it's not going to work. Um, but I think that's a, the biggest thing I could share. Well, that seems like for me to perfect place to end the, the conversation. And so I know we have a few minutes left. Does anybody out there have questions they want to ask Josh? Um, how did you attain your user base? So early on, what we did was a lot of uh, keyword optimization. So first it was, you know, figuring out where our customer spends their time, um, what their interests are, uh, what their, you know, age group uh, does on the weekend, uh, what they're, they're passionate about themselves. And then it was using that data and uh, applying it to our, our search algorithms. So it's, you know, on the SEO side, being able to plug in keywords that resonate with where they're already spending their time. Uh, one thing that we did was, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with an app called Facetune, where you would take a picture of yourself and it would make you look older. Um, so being that our customer base or, or customer demographic was a millennial, we would try to include some of those keywords in our app itself. So it was, you know, like ranking for the word Facetune um, because that's where our customer that didn't recognize our app yet was spending their time. But if, you know, we were able to rank with that app as well, then that means that they would come across us. So that's what really helped us out early on. And to date, you know, we haven't spent a dime to acquire any of our customers. So it's it's worked well. Um, and right now what we're working on is doing a lot of uh, referral strategies. So it's, it's working with our existing users to, you know, see how we can uh, get them to refer their friends. And so far we've seen a lot of people at the workplace, like tell their, their coworkers about us. So it's, it's been awesome to see that, that network effect. Um, but early on it was a lot of keyword optimization. So just, you have to know your customer well. Um, and that's how you're going to be able to find your customer. Yeah. So first you have to understand where your customer is, right? So if it's in the context of, let's say you're in the trucking industry, you sell trucks, um, where do truckers spend their time? Uh, is, is, is that at a, you know, cuties out of the loves gas station. Um, you know, what are they doing when they're there? Then you start, um, marketing for, for words that resonate with like loves, for example, if they're spending their time, if they're a trucker, it's, it's really a game of chance. You know, if you want to put yourself in the best place possible for, for the likelihood of success, if that makes sense. So it's, it's a targeted approach. You know, you, you don't want to just throw yourself out there and, and see who bites. You want to throw yourself um, where this specific type of fish lives. It's it's a lot of educated guesstimation, if that makes sense. So you're, you're never going to be 100% correct. 
Yeah, I would just say it's essentially it's it's the idea that that um, you're optimizing the words you use on your website and in the code behind your website to um, maximize your search engine results and to maximize the likelihood that yours is going to be something that pops up as an ad on another website um, when those when those when somebody else uses those same keyword. It it was a, a lot about you know doing that the educated approach. You you have to learn where your customer lives, where they spend their time. Um, and then try to replicate, you know, where, what their interests are and figure out how that can hopefully get them to, to bite on your product. Um, but I had to do a lot of research myself and, and try to figure it out. What helped out was, was having worked for DCI. I mean, they did run a, a digital marketing apprenticeship program. Although I was not a digital marketer, um, I worked in sales. I got to understand, you know, how that worked and um, what kind of concepts exist in today's workplace, whether it's a B2B company or a B2C company. Um, but it was a lot of learning. I, I can't attribute how much, um, but that, that's what I would share. So we would use um, we would use Hotjar initially. Um, we would also use things like such as SEM Rush, which you know correlates with SEO and being able to to rank for for search in, or in search engines. Um, one thing that was helpful to us was uh, a tool called Firebase. So it basically allows us to deploy. And, and capture insights on both the Android and Apple uh, Play Store or Apple App Store. And basically what that tool tells us is here are the types of, you know, retail or retail products your customer is searching for. Here's the other apps that they probably have downloaded on their on their apps on their on their own phone. Um, here's how much time that they spend on their phone. Um, I, things like that. So it, it's a combination of tools um, that are all actually free to use. Um, but that's that's what I would say helped us out. So because we're not a lender, we don't charge interest rates. We actually are to our advantage. You know, we don't pull any credit reports. Um, so that's a big difference between payday lenders. Um, what we do actually, so we use a data aggregator called Plaid uh, Technologies out of San Francisco. Basically, what that does is it allows us to support over thirteen thousand banks here in the U.S. Um, the same way you sign up for your login to your your bank application today, whether that be Chase, Bank of America, is the same way you actually sign up to our app. With that, you know, we understand what your spending habits are. Um, you know, with like we can tell if a CPS energy bill is going to cause your account to go overdraft. And it's basically being able to apply algorithms can that can anticipate when that might happen based off your your spending habits, being able to calculate things such as like your debt to income ratio, um, understanding how frequently you're paid, and then how the the mechanics of the the float actually works is um, you know we first have to understand that you're you're employed, you receive direct deposit. Um, and then at time at date of recollection, if you borrowed fifty dollars, for example, then we'll automatically send a, a deduction to your account for the fifty dollars uh, to collect for that. So it's that's how it works. It, it, you know what we charge today is so or how a business model works is that we charge users $1.99 per month to basically monitor their account, tell them when they're at risk for overdraft, and also grant them free access to wage advances of up to $50. So the the caveat to that is that, you know, it can take two to three days to hit your account. So it's being able to time that, you know, corrective for the user. 
Um, now, what we've seen actually is if a user wishes to rush their advance, which currently about 91% of users choose that option, will and it's kind of you know obvious, user has an imminent need right now, they're, they're going to want money right now, we'll charge a delivery fee for that. So that's a fee that we incur from our payment processor, which will then charge you know a little bit extra to make up on the margin for that. So today, that fee is anywhere from 2 to $4. So in the example of $50, if you take on an, a float for $50 today, you're paychecks to you tomorrow, for example, and you choose chose to rush that option, um, we'll deduct $54 from your account. So that, that's kind of how the mechanics of the, the business model works. On the saving side, since uh, you brought that up, it's really around helping the user build self-sufficiency. So our, if you look at the the demographic of and spending habits of our customer, they they can't save. You know, they're they're having issues saving. Some do have savings. Um, funny enough, there's actually several, or quite a bit of six figure earners that you know are living paycheck to paycheck, and they they need a, a cash advance to help them get through the the week. And um, the the thing that I was gonna say is that you know they 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 recognize that they're they're short uh, every pay period, so the urgency to build savings is there. And now it's about them being able to figure out a tool that can help them do that. So what we want to do with the saving side is bring them to a place of self-sufficiency where they may not rely on the the float side as much, which of course, you know, involves being able to, to drain on our lending capital, um, but where they can, you know, borrow from their own, or not borrow, but transfer from their savings account to fund any cash shortfall that they might have. What's it been like having a Venture for America fellow on our team? So that's Ryan Cleary. He's our, our COO. Um, he has been incredible. Um, you know, he he brings out uh, things of myself that I, I do not bring out. Um, he's there covering things when I can't do things. So, for example, he manages all of our support and, and marketing today. Um, Ryan is is phenomenal um he has been able to leverage all of his uh vfa network to like i guess they're, they're one of our investors today they've uh, been able to connect us to you know some contractors that can help facilitate some of our marketing or content creation um but ryan's been phenomenal i mean it's been awesome getting to meet the amy nelson the ceo of, of vfa um I'd say they, they produce high-caliber high talent, and um, I, I'm really excited. They have a presence here in San Antonio, and I only hope that that continues to grow. Uh, one of our, our co-founders, actually, that was uh, involved in the Startup Weekend, his name is uh, Caleb Scott. Um, he's actually a junior in high school. To me, it's been a learning experience as well because you're having someone that's much younger than you um, be a part of something that – he obviously doesn't have exposure to because you know in his mind it's 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 high school you know playing golf he's a he's a golfer he's actually surprisingly very mature um he's learned a lot and on my end it's how can i be a good leader for him or how can i tell him here's the mistake that you know you, you've made um there's a lot of a lot of learning that has has came through with with having Caleb on board um but the good thing is that he recognizes that he recognizes when he does, uh, he might do something wrong or, um, he's, he's aware of, of his surroundings. He knows, uh, what not to say, what to say. Uh, he's, he's a very bright kid and, um, we're, we're excited to have him on board. So 
so we got the equity conversation uh, settled early on. Uh, when we bring on new uh, team members, you know, there we have an equity pool that we have for for future hires that we can draw upon. Um, but as a CEO of you know your company, you're you're selling someone on the vision. So you're selling someone on what the company could be. At the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of um, ambiguity that that exists. Um, but you know, you're selling someone and telling them that you know, here's where we could be at in you know five years from now, ten years from now, if we do these things correctly. I, I'd say it, it's that. Um, but internally, we 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 call each other like everyone's head of HR. Um, you know, none of us know anything much about HR, um, but. There, there's there's a lot of looseness still. I mean, you know, like we, I'm not cognizant of, you know, when you're at the workplace, as long as you're getting stuff done, we have our, our work from home days, like you can work from home wherever you feel comfortable, as long as you're, you're getting stuff done. You know, we're not super picky on what you can be doing at the work. I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's really about just believing in someone and having the confidence that they believe in you. I think that's that's pretty much what it comes down to. Fortunately, we, we're at the stage where we can pay salaries and everything. So that 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 does help out. Obviously, you know, you're not going to have somebody want to work for free. Um, early on, it is so sweat equity, right? Um, you know, you're, you're having conversations around who does what, um, if they're full time, that really matters, you know, and it, it changes the narrative when we do have funding and you can pay salaries. Um, but it, it really depends on what stage you're at. You know, you're going to have to tr switch your mindset as to the type of people you want to have on. Is this person in a good place of their life where they can afford to quit their job? Um, there's, you have to be real with people, you know, you're going to have to have those real conversations and see what they're willing to, to commit. Um, if not, then you're not going to get past that, that initial stage. We deal with, we deal with competition. Um, I think what, what really matters is who's your customer? Is the competition your customer or is your customer your customer? You know, the competition is not going to pay for your product. The customer is, right? So you have to remain focused on your customer. Um, you know, the customer is the one that can drain or, you know, keep your company afloat essentially. Um, so that's the way I view a lot of the competitive landscape is just remaining focused on your customer. Early on, it was a lot of me going out to, to investors. Uh, thankfully, recently, that narrative has changed a little bit. Um, we do have a lot of investors that reach out. And typically, what that means, that if, if, if an investor is reaching out, is that they want to keep you in their pipeline. So what you want to do with that kind of conversation is that you want to you know, keep them on your monthly updates. So you want to be able to report, you know, here's where we were at last month. Here's where we're at this month. Because when you think about fundraising, it's all about the the milestones and an investor should easily be able to paint a picture in their head and be like, okay, this company has gone from, you know, X in month one to X in month six. Um, and then in terms of vetting out investors, it, it comes back to the value that they can provide. So you want to look at, you know, who their network is, have they invested in, in a, probably the same industry that your, your company like is in. Um, I would say, you know, can, can they help out with, with HR? Cause you, you want to have an investor be able to tell you, okay, here's where you can pull talent from. Um, you want to, to find more value than, than, than the money. I mean, there, there's no right answer, I would say. I think it really comes down to about 
putting yourself in the right situation. Um, you want to go out to, you know, events to where investors are going to be at. You want to get involved with the director of an, of an angel group like Elmo Angels here in San Antonio. Uh, you want to build a good report with them and just share what you're working on. It may not be that you're going to pitch at their next event, but they already have, you know, knowledge of who you are. And maybe if they're talking to somebody else that, you know, that, that has a, interest in the space that you're working in they can easily slide slide and say like or make a you know affordable email intro that says oh uh, this person's working on, on on this like why don't you connect with them so it, it's it's really an adverse network effect like you want to be able to build relationships uh with people because you never know if that person might know someone that could be a, a good investor um but in addition to that what i like to do a lot is um you know, go on LinkedIn and see who they're connected to. If they're connected to someone that you might know, ask that person for an intro. But, you know, you want to, in that email intro, you want to be direct, like, you know, start off with a question and be like, hey, can you introduce me to this person at, at this? Here's why I think we're a fit for, you know, his investment profile. It seems like that he's invested in XYZ. Um, he knows this, this, and that. I think we could really benefit from, you know, having a conversation with him. Um, so you kind of want to sweet talk people. Um, that's, I'd say the other thing that comes down to, but it's, it's a lot of outreach yourself early on. Well, I think that's probably we're at time, so that's probably as good a place as any to end. Um, I guess, uh, Josh, thank you very much. Uh Thanks for listening to this month's episode. Be sure to check out geekdom.com for more information about the Geekdom Fireside Chat series, other Geekdom events, and membership opportunities. Look for Geekdom on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>